This podcast represents my opinion and the opinion of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I am not establishing a patient-physician relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions you may have. Welcome, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Not Your Doc podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa, and because I am expecting a baby any day, I am not with Dr. Tadros and Seth in the Midwest Hearts and Minds studios, but I wanted to pop in and say hey and introduce a two-part discussion they hosted recently with Dr. Tadros's friend and general surgeon, Dr. Michael Smith. This week's topic is gallbladder disease. In the U.S., approximately 6 million men and 14 million women have gallstones between the ages of 20 and 74, and about 120,000 require surgery for treatment each year. Interestingly, gallbladder attacks are a frequent occurrence in pregnant women, and treatment, including surgery, is often needed in all trimesters. I actually have several friends that have experienced this personally, so I'm especially interested to hear Dr. Smith talk more about this common medical condition. And now I'll kick it off to Mr. Not Your Doc himself, Dr. Charles Tadros. Take it away, Dr. Tadros. Today we are having one of my colleagues, my friends, uh, somebody I refer to, somebody I listen to a lot, Michael Smith. Dr. Michael Smith is a uh, recently retired general surgeon uh, here, but um, I've known Michael for 30 years. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, about 30 years, 28 years. Uh, Michael actually started private practice uh, way back uh, in Iowa, way back in 1991. He just recently retired, retired in December of uh, 2021. Michael has a resume uh, as long as uh, two of my arms. Uh, Michael uh, has uh, was involved uh, over the many years, everything from uh, helping uh, get the American Cancer Society accreditation for uh, one of the hospitals, which is a five-year process, I understand. He was sat on critical care committees. He sat on infection control committees, surgical executive committees, ICU committees, cancer committees, uh, credentialing committees. He was uh, he was OR director oper- uh, for uh, operations room uh, director. He sat on pharmacy and therapeutics committees. He sat on what we call medical records in the old days, but called health information management. Uh, Michael uh, trained um, uh, started in Illinois. Um, actually, actually, med- medical school here at SLU at St. Louis University, and did his uh, his uh, first year, uh, his internship year in Detroit, and then uh, uh, finished the rest of his uh, residency up in Loyola, uh, up in uh, Illinois, um, and then Chicago. eventually Chicago. Yeah, and then thank you, and then he uh, practiced in Iowa before he came to St. Louis, and he's been here for many years. Uh, so welcome, Michael. I, I I could be more specific, but. Uh, but uh, I think this gives us a, a, a feel that you know a lot and you've seen a lot and you've done a lot. Uh, he's done research. He's published. Um, so welcome, Michael. Nice to see you. Thank you very much, Chuck. It's nice to be with you. We I, Out of the hundreds of things I could talk with Michael about uh, today, uh, I wanted to talk about the basic stuff that uh, that general surgency, whatever I, my patients end up in the emergency room um, and and end up uh, needing a surgeon, and Mike, Mike uh, Michael is the one I choose, or he's on call, or he's covering the emergency room, and he covers multiple emergency rooms sometimes at one, whenever he's on call. Back in the uh, just a few years ago, um, this basic stuff that I end up uh, uh, with my patients that end up in the emergency room were three big things uh, that he would fall in his purview. There were hernias. There were oftentimes what we call uh, strangulated. They were they were not getting blood supply, and we'll talk about these. We'll talk about specifics, uh, appendix appendix. Uh, we hear about everything from kids to, 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 to adults, and then uh, and then gallbladders, and uh, so the gallbladders are, are a popular uh, problem in the United States, uh, and it's, it happens in young women uh, probably more than men. It happens during pregnancy and peripartum period. Uh, so we'll talk about those things. Those are three big things. General surgeons cover a lot, lot more. But I'm going to ask Michael. Michael, tell me why you end up in general surgery and how you end up uh, in St. Louis, and uh, and uh, can you give me just got a little background? Well, I think going back way till young age, my grandparents had farms, so we worked on the farms. We had animals we had to take care of and all that kind of stuff, and just working with your hands. My grandfather on my father's side was a blacksmith for the railroad as well, so he had to talk to What kind of smith? 
blacksmith. Oh, blacksmith well, from the railroad. A, he, I mean, he would rebuild the engines yeah. and weld and cut and yeah. cutting torches and all that kind of stuff. So he had us out doing that and driving. I, I remember driving a garden tractor when I was about seven years old. <laughs> so it just no license needed. <laughs> no. Well, we can get into some of that, but we used to be able to take the car by about 11 or so and go to town. So. Well, it's, no, people uh, people on wide open spaces, yeah, they're driving trucks and stuff on their on their farms and stuff or yeah, whenever they're preteens, yeah. So really it was just something where we used our hands and, and got out there and you really mm-hmm. had a feel for everything, both mentally and physically. Yep. And I guess that was what was one of my major things in terms of going into surgery. Yeah, uh, it's I, very, it's very man. It was very mechanical, manual, very visual, very space, visual, visual, spatial. Where you have to picture right. things, things you can't see. You kind of can understand from X-rays and CAT scans. Right. Yeah. Well, historically, from a general surgical standpoint, yep. In the fifties, yep. And sixties, people were trained as from general surgeons that they'd actually do uh, fractured hips. Yep. Bone settings, all kinds of different things, vascular surgery, right. uh, even do lung surgery and stuff like that. Yes. So that was where there was a great appeal because there was such a wide expanse right. of different types of surgery that you could do. Back then, we didn't have as many uh, colleges for fo- with fellowships that for all the subspecialties of surgery well, back then. We were trained, and had, because there were not so many fellows, mm-hmm. we uh, were able to be... Where by third or fourth year residency, we were actually doing the surgeries right. under tutelage, and by our senior year, we were actually taking people through there to show not only that we had competency to do it, right. but to train other people in addition to having the attending staff there. So, uh, four years of undergrad. Typically, some people go differently, but four years of undergrad. Oftentimes, in the old days it was some sort of science base, and you did uh, chemistry. I was a chemistry and biology double major, double major. and studied embryology as well. Yeah, that, so. and then four years of med school, typically yes. uh, allopathic medicine and also home- uh, osteopathic medicine, and then you did a residency, which is five years. But you did well, extra. general surgery is uh, was a. A five-year program, right. and where I originally started in Detroit, the uh, person that I was most interested in, because I, that, Dr. Peterson was my mentor mm-hmm. at St. Louis U, an mm-hmm. advisor, and I was very interested in vascular surgery. In fact, I wrote a paper while I was a senior student mm-hmm. with him, and it was published in a, one of the premier journals. And he, Dr. First. Peterson was a vascular surgeon. Gary Peterson. Uh, he Gary, was the head of yeah. vascular surgery right. at St. Right. Louis U. I was interested in that, and where I went to at Sinai Hospital in Detroit, uh, they had a gentleman there who was a cardiovascular surgeon, mm-hmm. but his big thing was aortis, and he was actually mm-hmm. involved in developing the intraaortic balloon pump uh-huh. and was trying to get something set up where he could have a totally implantable intraaortic right. balloon pump. Right. And during my first year, he made some, I guess, political issues mm-hmm. that he wound up leaving my mm-hmm. second year. And so since that kind of all that research stuff fell by the wayside, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, through talking with different people here in St. Louis and mm-hmm. other places, uh, I was able to get a, a research fellowship for a year in Chicago at Loyola mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the Heinz VA. And mm-hmm. so I spent a year doing research there, and then I had ongoing processes with bench research as well as clinical research. Mm-hmm. From then on, and that's where I got a lot of my resume. And your research was in uh, endocrinological surgery, right? So this Parathyroid, is thyroid, thyroid. Yep. So I'm for our listeners. So we talk about. I'll, I'll come back, and Michael Michael explains this better than I can. But uh, but intraaortic balloon pumps are special for uh, for heart failure patients, and this is kind of a very special kind of uh, implantable, uh, temporary implantable uh, uh, procedure. But it was it's a surgical procedure back then, and now it's much run. By, most of them are percutaneous now. That's they right. Do them. They do them through through a small hole, a needle in a hole, and running something through your groin uh, up in an artery. But that's back then. But eventually, what you eventually did your research on was was the, the parathyroid and thyroid, which is in the front of your neck, underneath your skin, and underneath your muscle. There's a thyroid gland that looks kind of like a bow tie, and behind that, are about four pea-sized dots that are stuck to the back of the gland, sometimes five. It's called a parathyroid, and then the adrenal glands, which sit on, the, on top of the kidneys. Correct. Those are those are the big ones that you would be able to approach. Mostly, most of the work that we did with the two people that I worked with uh, 
Dr. Richard Prince and Dr. Edward Poloyan mm-hmm. were thyroid, parathyroid people. Yes. And mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Poloyan was head of research for the entire VA network throughout yes. the country. Yes, yes. And so it was one of those opportunities for getting to work with him and yeah. getting to be able to be funded to do research right. was a very important thing. Yeah. So that's how I got into that. And mm-hmm. then... Um, we did rotate because Chicago is a large area with multiple medical schools. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. were able to go to different other institutions, Northwestern, yeah. University of Chicago, things like that, and do rotations with other people that were there. Yeah. And they expected us to go to the, the professional meetings, so we'd go to Chicago Surgical and meet people from all over the city. Right. And when we had papers to present, they'd have us present them to them, so right. they were... Right. I guess they cued us up to know what right. we really need to right. answer questions about. When so, we- sur- surgery residencies are, are kind of an old-fashioned way, and to this day, uh, it's kind of a see one, do one, teach one type of technique. So, it's a journeymanship. It's a, whatever we call it, internship or, or first rotate or first year, uh, and then and then residency. But it's a tradition of of senior people who have experience. Uh, and you come in from book knowledge and a little bit of experience as a medical student, but you come in as a resident, and every year they give you more and more responsibility. Uh, you still have to do kind of base. Uh, you still have to book knowledge that you have to keep up because you have to pass boards. But you see, you, you watch techniques, and you, you and 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 the more techniques you watch, the more they let you do, and then you kind of climb. And as long as you're good and you learn. Uh, you get Correct. to cl- uh, uh, climb, and you have to rack up a certain amount of uh, 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 procedures for for it to be qualified. Um, the the issue, I would say, is probably just the opposite of what it is now. Yeah, it used to be the more procedures you did, the better you right. function. Yeah, the better breadth of practice that you had. Right, and now with so many fellowships, right, that people get very little of that training. Right, and so that's one of the things that is really, I would say, is probably. As much as much as a benefit, as much as a complicating issue, because right. people don't have that breadth of practice. Right. Now we have to have three practitioners right. doing specialized areas where I could do colorectal, I could do endocrine right. surgery, I could do breast cancer surgery, right. I could do uh, hepatobiliary, vascular, right. all those types of things. So you had where I had three of us that were trained like that. Right. You'd have most of the surgical department for even a larger hospital. Right. So, yeah, so you were trained and you could go, you can go out any small or big community, especially small communities where they didn't have access to all the subspecialists within surgery. Right. And you could cover a, a broad range of the body in terms of all the sur- trauma, exactly. uh, lung, lungs, and and, uh, and Well, ch- and that's and why chest. you see right now right. where you're hearing about critical access hospitals, I've smaller hospitals. Right. Well, right. there are hospitals that are, let's say, we drive down towards even Farmington, which is a larger community. Right, right. But like um, Jefferson Regional, mm-hmm. which is now basically a critical access, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they don't have people that are trained with that breadth of practice. So right. there's, they, it kind of limits that. Right. And in fact, I mean, one of the big things now is actually being where you work as a locum tenens to go mm-hmm. to those types of hospitals mm-hmm. to provide care. And they have, they're have they part of a bigger system that does is a level one trauma center, so they can transport they can people. Transport, they right. can transport people. But they're but sometimes coming from the southern area of, of uh, south of St. Louis, the first place you would hit would be a Jefferson where they can stabilize you so you can be airlifted right. to, to and big There's big a large places. number right. of all the way down Potosi. And, right. Um, right. Of all the way down to the boot heel right. number of hospitals that are smaller, but they don't have the volume where they can have right. a, support a, a vascular whole, surgeon, support a general a vascular surgeon, person, right. Uh, right. Uh, somebody who does robotics and stuff like that, which is now the big thing is doing laparoscopic and robotic. And that was the other thing mm-hmm. about my particular era of training right when we started there was no laparoscopic right so laparoscopic is is small and small slits multiple small slits instead of being a big the old-fashioned big scars down the middle of the belly or across the 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 liver the right upper belly big these big six and eight and ten inch scars now you can have small a couple of small holes you can insert rods firm rods and you can manipulate stuff uh uh through through optical scopes right you have an optical scope that's hooked up to a television monitor camera so you have a big Huge picture, how big, big picture, or, right? 
you want to do and it's in high definition. The whole idea behind laparoscopy, uh, and this is, by the way, people hear about it because of knee scopes and, and other things, but but uh, laparoscopy is that, that, that it was uh, you can healing time because you didn't have to heal a big six and eight and ten inch incision to, uh, through muscle. And then also infection and infection. Correct. And, and, uh, and just plain old ability to just to get up and cough and move. Wow. Uh, was is, was a big deal compared to the old. And I think yeah. I think going on uh, initially there was a big hesitancy towards ha- people having laparoscopic right. surgery yes. because of the way it was done. People, a lot of the younger people did it that the older people did not want to. Right, right. They had injuries as a result of technique. Yes. And these injuries, especially with uh, placement of trochars and. Yes penetrating right. other organs or right. doing a gallbladder and winding up getting into the major liver right. anatomy that you don't need to be into right. and those types of things. But it's a learning curve, which is painful and slow and uh, well, but, yeah, but it, it was necessary. Yeah. That was one of the other benefits at Loyola because we had three private hospitals that we rotated mm. to the mm-hmm. VA and then the university hospital. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of the private hospitals actually through people who are uh, residency mates two or three years ahead of me, yes, yes. started doing laparoscopic surgery right. in Chicago, among the first to do it there. And so we got exposed to that very early on. Yes. And my last year, the last thing that we did before we transitioned in, out of residency into private practice was the attending staff at the university. Mm-hmm. We took them through their first dog labs. We took them through their Mm-hmm. Their training mm-hmm. to do, right, and be able to do laparoscopic surgery on a, on, on humans, right. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't think people understand whenever they see a confident surgeon, a competent surgeon, how much hands-on, how much experience that they've had over many years, on nights and weekends, holidays, whatever, whenever surgery is needed because it's not always planned. Uh, how much experience uh, people have to have in order to feel comfortable and confident because not everybody's laid out the same inside. We, we, we don't, we're not the same on the outside, especially on the inside, uh, as we have big variations. And when they teach us stuff in anatomy uh, in, in medical school, they sometimes will tell us about variants, but it's only whenever you become a surgical resident and, and, and a surgeon that you re- start realizing how many variants there are in your common bile duct and, and hepatic ducts and, and all these other things and the, the, how the vessels lay out. They'll teach you basics in, in, in anatomy in med school, first and second year, uh, but, but it's only in real life that you realize it's not, it's not always the same. Sometimes it's, a lot of it, there's a ton of variation in a lot of people. And so, yeah. Well, I think another thing that was kind of interesting, St. Louis Hugh and the Department of Anatomy as they yes. taught us anatomy. Yes. They actually had Dr. Paul Young Sr. Mm-hmm. was the head of the anatomy department, and I think it was in the late 70s mm-hmm. or so. He 1970s. actually took mm-hmm. uh, cadavers and had them slice them. Selection so yeah. Yeah. they gave us sections that you could look and say, well, this is this, this is that, right. so you can picture it in a 3D right. manner. And the biggest thing about that was... About three years later, they had CT scan come right, along. Yes, so could correlate that cross-sectional anatomy and comparing that with CTs was mm-hmm. something that a lot of places didn't have that type of thing. So we were ahead having of the game. our first yeah. class in medical school being anatomy. Right, that was one of the things that really right. helped out a tremendous amount. So people forget that that within our lifetime, CAT scans came to light. You know, it's, uh, there were no but, CAT scans yeah. when we were in medical school. Yeah, so uh, so it was just within our. I remember when the first CAT scan came to like uh, Cardinal Glennon, the, the pediatric hospital. Whenever I was in medical school, uh, so uh, so people forget this stuff, and we live we we live breathe. Everybody that hits the emergency room with practically anything will get a CAT scan nowadays. Back then. They were. They take two hours to do. Yeah, and it'd be very fuzzy things that were hard to read. That's right. Now you can get a CAT scan in 15 minutes with ultimate high density, yeah. uh, high definition, high definition. Yeah, one to pictures. two. We can pick up two, one and two millimeter lesions in lungs and gallbladders and all well, sorts of stuff. It's and they big. can refra- recolumate these things so you have frontal or sagittal or. Yeah, we can reorient. Yeah, once you it's digitized, you can just reorient to just like a playing a player game. You can you can go around an object and you see it from multiple angles. And so now we can do that with CAT scans with the the data and how much we can crunch data. So coming down to uh, to uh, kind of what what pulls you to the emergency rooms. A lot of these things are uh, not planned. Some t- uh, appendicitis is usually not planned. Gallbladders can be planned. Hernias can be planned, and oftentimes they're not. By the time they see me, uh, I either uh, they're 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 you know they're uh, so let's talk let's start well, talking about yeah go ahead specifically with the emergency room yeah as far as 
gallbladders go, those are the people that will present to the emergency room because they're having acute symptoms that right. are not resolving. Right. They may be jaundice. They may have fever. Yep. A very tender abdomen. Um, well, let's start. Let's start with the anatomy. Let's start with gallbladders. That's a, that's that's a good one because uh, we I, I get fooled uh, uh, by gallbladders all the time. Um, so let's start with the, just basic anatomy. If you're standing up and with your your and your, your right hand, if you draw your up your right hand up your up your thigh up to your side, your rib to your ribs, right below your ribs sits your liver, and underneath your liver sits your gallbladder. So correct. Please take it away. Well, <clears throat> the the they call it the bile ducts. Looks like a tree. There's a basically mm -hmm. one duct that comes down eventually from the liver that goes into the small intestine. Right. The duodenum just beyond the stomach. A pancreas duct attaches to it at the same location. So mm -hmm. the pancreatic juices and the bile duct mm -hmm. get together and they, they start the process of digestion and stuff like that. Yeah, so this um, is, uh, people don't realize this uh, is that, is that the, I call it the, the, the gallbladder is kind of like a soap dispenser, and the soap is made in the liver, the bile is made in the liver, and it's stored, stored. in the gallbladder, and whenever, whenever the, it's like a soap dispenser, whenever you're, you chew the food, it sits in your stomach for a while, and then it comes out of your stomach into your first part of your small intestines, that's when the duodenum, and the second part of the duodenum, which is only a foot long, it's eight or yeah, 12 inches duodenum, long. The most important part is probably in the first three inches, that's yeah. where the pylorus is that it goes from the transition of the stomach to the duodenum. Yeah, it's intestine. a valve. The bile ducts are coming in there within a half inch or so beyond that. Yeah, they it's very tight. Underneath there into the pancreas and join yep. more medially. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of blood vessels there that go to the That's stomach, right. to the duodenum, to the kidneys, the adrenal glands, mm -hmm. multiple vessels to the liver. Yep. Plus you have the veins coming back from the intestine called right. portal veins, portal veins. That's that right. bring the nutrients that have been absorbed back mm -hmm. into the liver to be processed into right. energy or fat or muscle tissue and all that kind of stuff. So so the gallbladder is, sits there, and, 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 and unlike what you may see whenever you're watching you know, TV shows, things are very compact, very 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 uh, 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 squeezed in. The body, the body stuffs it in like I stuff uh, clothes into my, into my suitcase. You know, every nook and cranny, there's something. There's no open spaces. Uh, uh, so everything is packed into each other. And you have, to, you have to pull apart. You have to see and pull apart sometimes mechanically so that you can get to the area of interest and right. you have to be very careful because stuff tears stuff perforates stuff bleeds uh, so you have to be very careful you're doing this nowadays most of the time with laparoscope right mostly with laparoscope there's a large contingent of people who want to do it with the robot while the robot's very the robot attached to the laparoscope on the outside well, it's basically right. yeah it's where there's right. a machine and you right. set it a console right and you control the arms of the of the robot right. with the console that's right. Um, so you're, si you're sitting near the patient with a console with your gloves off. In the same room. Right, the yeah, same room. You right. don't have the gloves on. You, right. don't have the, you have to wear your mask. mask. You have to wear, right. your, obviously, your scrubs. And how and many stuff. things are poking into the patient's belly, which is a few feet away from you? Well, um, it depends upon the technique that you want to use. Oh, because okay. even with laparoscopic, before robot came along, right. they developed what's called single incision laparoscopic oh, yes. surgery. Wow, yes. Where we made an incision about three-quarters of an inch long, and there yes. was a rubber a rubber thing that had multiple holes in it yeah and it looked almost like a bobbin that you'd buy thread at the yep, store, sure, store sure and you could collapse it down and put it in there and mm -hmm. it had one hole for the camera mm -hmm. and it had three other holes for the instruments for the instruments yeah. and then you could add in the typical laparoscopic if you needed more retraction or something like mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. for elective gallbladders where there's not a lot of inflammation a lot of scar right. tissue right you could do that, and it would work out very well, and the mm -hmm. patient would wind up with, most of the time, an inch-and-a-half incision yeah. around the umbilicus right. and and do that. But it was one of those things that, even as a somebody who has a lot of technical expertise with mm -hmm. the standard laparoscopy with the three mm -hmm. incisions below the right ribs and then mm -hmm. one at the belly button, right. Four having total so many instruments right. in such a close proximity, mm -hmm. you, were always, you had to have instruments of different lengths mm -hmm. That's so right. that your handles weren't bumping into each other mm -hmm. and... You had to have an assistant that could help hold mm -hmm. the camera and run the camera for you and see what you were doing. Mm -hmm. And so while I, I enjoyed doing the elective ones like that, mm -hmm. it was one of those things that this little bobbin-looking thing mm -hmm. was a $300 piece of equipment that got mm -hmm. thrown in the garbage can. Every time. So it was one of those things because of the transition from reusable, sterilizable materials mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. single-use, mm -hmm. pre-sterilized, get rid of it and move, right. uh, came down to where it was an, an cost. issue of cost. Cost, right. And 
technically with as much as it got thrown away with the standard, it probably still was less than what it is. Now, mm -hmm. with the robot, because there's more staff that have to be involved mm -hmm. with that, mm -hmm. the instruments where with the laparoscopic instruments, I could use those instruments 300, 400 times yeah. as a single instrument. So right. the cost of it was really pennies yeah, per nothing, case. Whereas with the robot, those instruments are so high tech that the company itself has, with Proprietary. all the computerized stuff, mm -hmm. there's chips in there that each time it's attached to the machine, mm -hmm. it clicks one off, and they, mm -hmm. you can only use those instruments for 20 cases mm -hmm. unless it, it malfunctions before that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, where, where the standard laparoscopic instrument may be $300, mm -hmm. these ones that were 20 use and throw away with all the electronics in it and everything mm -hmm. were on the order of about $3,000 a piece. Yeah, so dramatic difference in cost. Right. Yeah, and so even if you didn't use it, mm -hmm. the fact that it got re-sterilized means it was closer to its demise yeah, than to with the other instruments. Life. So. Right. So coming back, so with, with, with whether you do it with laparoscopes with, and manually, and that, or laparoscopes are attached to the robot. Uh, what, what's the robot's name? Is it Da Vinci or it's something? Da Vinci is the Vinci? main one. That's, okay. that's the one that's been around for now over fifteen years. Yeah, it's been and they're practically even a lot of the critical access hospitals are advertising that if they don't have it and you want mm. to do it, that mm -hmm. they can bring they can get bring it funding in. to get those things to leave it there. Yeah, cost-wise, I'm not sure in a smaller institution that that's viable. You know, like a three million dollar piece of equipment. That right. Part of it is to show that they're advanced and that 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 they care about the patient in terms of the patient experience. Uh, but you're right. Uh, within in in, in 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 your hands, laparoscope is cheaper and just as fast, if not faster. Well, um, the instrumentation you can mm -hmm. have, and you could ninety percent of it be reusable stuff. So there's very right. little waste. Dispense. Right. With it, the instruments can be used a hundred times, or two hundred times, or three hundred times yeah. without damaging, depending upon who's using them or right. not. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where a lot of times with the stock instruments that they had in different cases, right. I had my own sets of instruments right. that in part paid for them mm -hmm. myself, right. so that nobody used them, right. and you knew, the you... the people who were rough on the instruments. Didn't get to touch them. Didn't get to touch them. <laughs> exactly. It's kind of like your, my so, tools in my in my in my in my garage. Yeah, right. certain things you don't want to loan out because it won't come back in the same condition. So whenever so so these patients with gallbladders, I'll get well, back to the clinical with stuff. The, with the elective yeah. pa patients, have mm -hmm. if they have a, a cheeseburger and fries, they may wind up having some pain that be between your shoulders, some heart pain, indigestion, a lot of belching. Right. They may eat and an hour later find that they need to be headed to the bathroom or they're going to have a problem. Bathroom for diarrhea or bathroom to throw up? Uh, either or either, both. Either or both, yeah. Is so, it about an hour after you eat? Because the timing is important. Hours. I mean, yeah. once, once, the bio, I mean right. once the food starts getting uh, digested with the initial process yes. in the stomach, the gallbladder within about a half hour starts to contract and mm -hmm. excrete gall. And that's what starts the whole digestive process. And the, normally that works well, but why does it? Why is well, it a gallbladder attack or colicky pain? And well, what, is, what does that mean? The biggest thing is most people who have biliary colic or gallbladder problems have gallstones. And what mm -hmm. happens is that mm -hmm. the bile is stored in the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. The gallbladder wall will absorb water and concentrate, concentrate that. So just like right. making rock candy, mm -hmm. yep. you get little tiny stones. Some people have very small stones. Yeah, some people sludgy. have actually a cast of the gallbladder where it's not functioning at all. And, mm. and those people who have that oftentimes don't have as serious of symptoms mm. because the gallbladder is not functioning. Yeah, it's interesting. That you'll see that. But eventually, because it's a static organ now, bacteria get in it and it gets infected right and then that's where you have a, a, a problem and some of them some of them hang like a, a cherry on a stem mm -hmm. below the gallbladder or mm -hmm. below the surface of the liver mm -hmm. so they're easy to identify anatomy mm -hmm. some of them are partially and I've actually had a couple of patients where they were actually mm -hmm. within the liver substance that yeah. you had to be where you take Dissect that apart and that's where you start getting into issues of bleeding and yep. really having to know your liver anatomy Yep. in addition to the standard anatomy where the gallbladder is located. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variation in those things, so you very need to be uh, very well-versed in different yes. types of things because you may take out the blood vessel to the right side of the liver, mm -hmm. and while the portal circulation is there, the oxygen and the uh, other stuff is not so much 
mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and that you have segments of the liver die from things like that. Yep. So it's really one of those things that's very important to know mm-hmm. where you are, what it looks like when you first go in. Is mm-hmm. it shrouded in the liver? Is it hanging from a from a mesentery that is a 15-minute operation mm-hmm. uh, that can be done because you can see the anatomy quite mm-hmm. clearly. Mm-hmm. Once it becomes infected, uh, it will more or less like causing a boil on your skin. Mm-hmm. Right. If it gets by, uh, inf- a, a lot of pus in there, mm-hmm. it becomes terribly inflamed. And while it, in the native state, it's a very strong organ. Mm-hmm. Once that becomes infected and swells, it cuts off the blood supply. Mm-hmm. And now you get what's called gangrene of the gallbladder. Necrotic and or now, d- dead now gallbladder. It's, it's like trying to d- dip the noodles out of chicken noodle soup yeah. as opposed it, it to falls trying apart. to get the gallbladder out in a, a condition that we frankly don't see. Yeah. If there are big stones, it's not a terribly big deal. If you, you have to take out the whole gallbladder. You just can't take out you stones. Can't, you no, can't suck I, out if, stuff like that. If, right. Going back to the 40s and before, yes. they would actually take stones out. Yeah, that's right. And They did used to have leave, ostomy, ostomy. Yeah, they right. used to have an they ostomy. They would take this. Actually, they'd sew it up and put a drain in there. And and then once it had healed, they took the drain out mm-hmm. and are there. But... The reason they had the stones is because of the function of the gallbladder. Right. And so you tend to have more. Right. And that's why it's really important to know your anatomy well enough that you've got the entire gallbladder out. Right. And you leave a little stump of that duct from mm-hmm. the gallbladder to the main bile duct less than a centimeter, about three a quarter to three-eighths of an inch mm-hmm. or less, so that they won't form stones in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you're around long enough, you see a lot of different things. That's right, you will. In the old days, where they may have had something that was quite small duct-wise, mm-hmm. they took it at the edge of the gallbladder, mm-hmm. but this duct was an inch and a half long. Right. Now it'll start to dilate up above where you put your clips, your ties, mm-hmm. and it'll have repeat function, but it's more prone to forming stones. Stones, yeah. And then you say, well, it's not the gallbladder because it's been taken out. Right. And then you're... D- have higher potency of common bile duct stones, jaundice, that type of thing. And most of those patients you tend to see them in are septuagenarians, octogenarians, and they're not the best candidates to take back to the operating room to do a redo surgery, which was done open in the beginning. So it's one of those things where, and they can be done. I mean, well, yeah. Um, so, so these pa- these patients at risk. I'll jump back. These patients at risk are are are, are 40s and 50, sometimes we'll see them in well, their twenties or whenever they're we, pregnant and thirties. Well, can, can you tell me kind of the typical patient yeah. and what the range is and why they well, get them at, at at age fifty or forty? Well, I think it's one of those things. It's a common pre- a thing of diet, and it's uh, they tend to be familial, but. Right. Families tend to eat the same types of foods. That's a good point. And so the, if the genetics of their biliary system are going to be mm-hmm. pretty similar, um, that that's where you'll you'll see those. Now, gotcha. we, we, a lot of people didn't believe in what they call acalculus cholecystitis or yeah. biliary dyskinesia, right. meaning an abnormal function of the gallbladder so where you don't have stones. No stones or sludge or sand or a grit in there, but it just doesn't squeeze right. Yeah. And if, if the duct going from the gallbladder to the main bile duct is very narrow and it gets thick like toothpaste, mm-hmm. think of it like frozen toothpaste. It yeah. just blocks the duct up and they can't excrete it quite as easily. Right. And get the same symptoms. A lot of people call it acalculus cholecystitis, yeah. or biliary dyskinesia. Right. Uh, if if they're not having, and it feels the same way. It feels cocky, cramping in your right upper belly between your shoulder blades. Uh, you uh, and and you feel nauseated, etc. And so it, and you still have to take out the gallbladder for those types of acalculus. Right. If they have persisting symptoms and mm-hmm. it's felt that it's mm-hmm. something that's. Uh, how do you diagnose that if they don't have if they don't have uh, stones? Well, whenever you ultrasound them, what how do you, what what tests do you do? You you can do in the old days before nuclear medicine came along. We give them what's called an oral cholecystogram, where they mm. take pills. Mm-hmm. That would be absorbed into the biliary system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it would concentrate in the gallbladder, and you could see the contrast. The contrast would actually shadow the stones, mm-hmm. and so you could see these on taking an X-ray of the mm-hmm. upper abdomen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a frequent test. A lot of times, I guess in the seventies, eighties, nineties, people used to get executive physicals. Oh yes, so they get the right. barium minima, yeah. their upper GI, right. yes, their new, uh, their We're OCG going, and. Right. Blood or glucose tests. Yeah. Exactly. The yes. whole 
panel that unit analysis and all yeah, that that should be we should talk a, that's a separate uh, discussion <laughs> because the people are trying to go back to that type of executive physical but we'll come back to that another day yes so yeah so that's how they would pick it up they'd find it because either the the gallbladder wouldn't show up on the initial dose so right. they would come back if it didn't show up they'd have you take another round of pills so that you got a double dose mm -hmm. of the first mm -hmm. dose mm -hmm. and they didn't show up on both of those that was the indication before ultrasound became highly available right. to see. And if the ultrasound didn't show it, that was the go-to test mm -hmm. until the right. early 2000s or so, mid-2000s, I guess. Yeah, ultrasound is like sonar, like what well, you see submarines. They, right. they use sound wave, they use a probe that they run over your top, top oh. some manual, just a handheld probe that they will run on like a greasy stick that run over your belly uh, and uh, bounce the sound waves off your liver and gallbladder and pancreas, and they get uh, they get shadows back, and, they, and the computer puts it in kind of a format that you can see it in. Um, and you can see uh, ducts, and you can see stones, you can see gallbladders, you can see the, the, the meat of the liver, the thickness, the parenchyma right. of the liver, and stuff like the that. blood vessels. Blood vessels and stuff thing. like that. You can see flow of blood vessels. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's gotten to the point now, ultrasound is a go-to test. That's right. And yeah. even now with trauma and things like that, yeah. the fast exams that you do to see is there free blood in the abdomen or belly right. trauma yes. or yeah. right. something like that are things that the emergency room physicians are now being trained to right, do. Yeah. Well, a lot of them will do yes. the ultrasound. Of the, oh, they got gallstones. You don't need to get an ultrasound. No, because what they do is a fast exam. Yeah. And what we do now where we look at where's the blood vessels, right. where's the bile duct, is it dilated, how thick is the wall, right. yeah. is there fluid around it? There's yes. so many things that we look at with ultrasound now right. that we didn't look at and if it doesn't follow into the American College of Radiation, Radiology right. standards, it's, it's not a complete ultrasound. So, right. I mean, just as a to keep yourself from getting yourself up the right. peak creek without a paddle, right. you need those standardized testing. So, yeah, so that's important. Yeah, the, the people now, it used to be that you had to wait and go to, a, a, from the emergency room, you had to wait sometimes hours uh, to, to go to the radiology suite where the uh, where the radiology tech, the ultrasonographer uh, tech would uh, would do this test and then there would be read by a radiologist. Now the ER doctor, while you're still in the gurney in the emergency room, can do a quick look with these quickie ultrasound uh, machines in the emergency room and get a flavor about select things. Uh, and one of them would be a gallbladder, but, but Mike is saying that you really still need to go to the ultrasound suite and still get a formal ultrasound because it helps the surgeon uh, in terms of layout of anatomy, et cetera, yeah. Well, I would say since probably 2020, mm. all the hospitals in St. Louis had ultrasound people there 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So, because this is one of those things, who's going to do the test and who's right. going right. to yep. get the fee for service, so yep. to speak. So, ah. this mm -hmm. is one of those things where there's a, there's been a battle back and forth, just yes. like everything else. Right. This is what the established criteria are, and if you don't do that, you can't be certified to do it. So. Most of the hospitals now have ultrasound techs, yeah. and with the advent of digital radiology, those right. are fed right in the computer, and right. the guy's sitting at home, and he can go look at his computer right. that has the ultra, I mean, the screens yeah. on those things are amazing. Yeah, they're wonderful and they're now screens. big screens, so you can see. So they can give you a, a, a an readout. official readout right. at 2 o'clock in the morning, right. and you can call the OR and yep. you put them on. Yep. If you have time at 7.30, you can do right. it first thing in the morning. Right. So maybe even by the, that afternoon, they can be out of the hospital yeah. and right. in a week be driving and in two weeks back to a, right. as long as they don't have fifth, you know, 25, 50-pound repetitive lifting throughout the day, right. they can be back at work. Yeah, which is a which is a big deal in terms of everything everything from hospitalization, inpatient stays, to disability after surgery, to uh, all this stuff is a big is a is a big deal, uh, and it's because you have ultrasound uh, ultra, ultrasound tech in house twenty four hours a day for these people. Because of course, gallbladder attacks only happen after typically after meals, so you're eating late at night your big fatty meal, and two or three or four hours later, then you end up in the emergency room for three or four hours, and somebody offers you some food while you're waiting there, yeah. and then the surgeon. Can't get it till four o'clock the, the, the afternoon. Then the surgeon wants to scream <laughs> because the patient ate. <clears throat> but this is kind of so all these things that patients don't see and families don't see this this stacking of risk 
uh, in terms of everything from your genetics to um, to um, your diet that happens over years, if not decades, to the stone and sludge buildup in the gallbladder to uh, to your ending up in the emergency room, typically at nighttime, and, and then it goes on from there as kind of how it comes. Uh, now, people can die from gallbladder disease, right, well, from gallbladder attacks, and we won't can, talk about cancer. But right, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you do find cancers on a re- occasional That's thing right. that is a very small one. That's right. But if you did, if it's if it's not up in the surface of the liver portion, right. way up high, it's really a, you take the gallbladder out. Yeah, you're not seeing. And that. if it's a small, less than a centimeter tumor, unless you saw enlarged nodes or something like that right. on the CAT scan, right. you probably wouldn't even need to go back. You wouldn't need any other type of treatment. It's more of an incidental finding. Mm-hmm. If it's just an interlining type of tumor. Right. You see a lot of those types of tumors that are benign tumors anyhow, Uh, probably because of a chronic inflammatory process of the gallstones being there. Interesting. Um, And sometimes if you go down to the pathology lab and look at them, you can actually see small refractile crystals at Mm. the center of those polyps that were caused by the cholesterol, cholesterol, or bilirubinate stones in there for the most part. So you see those types of things. But but people but whenever they become infected and inflamed and they they and they, they perforate they can perforate they can on occasion I so, mean you used to see that more ten fifteen years ago yeah. especially in older patients right. that, that may be at a nursing home nursing home really yes talk or they've they had can't, a stroke right. and they just know that something's not right, right. And they're having fevers and now jaundice right. and so they bring them in and you find a big thickened gallbladder that has now become gangrenous and perforated right and while you while you can do most, at least from my perspective, you can do probably most of those still laparoscopically. Interesting. You're, if you can't define the anatomy, right. the only other thing you can do is use your tactile, which means right. open procedures, right. so you can feel, feel the anatomy in addition to see it. Yep. And so that's where you get into the higher risk situations where Very people high risk. have those problems. Right. So the perforation is that now you have pus and, and bile. Uh, and stones. Bo- and stones. All throughout the abdomen. Throughout the abdomen, especially right upper quadrant. Uh, so it inflames the liver. And if it's t- and the stuff drains over the intestines and stuff. So now you have stuff. You can uh, actually get pus up above the liver between right. the diaphragm. And the liver. And a, I mean, those are where you need drains. And if you don't drain right. it, it's going to come back right. or be persistent. See subphrenic abscesses. Yeah, so this, exactly. this this becomes a whole anatomy. This is like a like a first year anatomy course now, where all the pus can go. Uh, how sick these people become super super sick, and they have to have drains, multiple drains, because where the right. where the where the pus was. Because once you close them up, once you close the uh, abdomen up, then then stuff can fester again. So you have to have an a, an exit. Uh, so you end up putting these these well, tunnels uh, with 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 cat with, with silastic catheters, catheters these, these silicone catheters, and uh, and so this these people become super sick. It's well, a chemical. It's a, it's a chemical is a chemical peritonitis and an infection and 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 and, 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 and a septic chemi- a chemical because of the reaction the, the, right. from the infection right yes. not from the bile itself oh ah, okay. okay not from the bile itself oh, it I can, didn't know you that. can get bile peritonitis if you had an acute rupture right. and it spread right um, but one of the things that you really have to look at especially if they've had a perforation and subphrenic abscess is yeah. to get your hand up there and feel yes. for stones way back because they're laying on their back they're yes. going to be behind the liver yes. between the kidney and the right. liver so you have right. to really you have to be thinking about these things right. when you have specialized cases like that and That's while right. you can deal with them by having drains put in percutaneously right they may spend two weeks more in the hospital absolutely yeah. and be in the ICU on a ventilator and they all these be. other things so yeah. sometimes it's better to face the music and it really yep. that's Spend an experiential time. thing right. of saying do I open now yep do I kick the field goal or right. do I go for the touchdown on the one yard line <laughs> Yeah, so, so what, what Michael's is describing is stuff that, that we talk about. Uh, and, and actually, whenever I, I take a biopsy of the liver, whenever I'm trying to tap a lung and, and <laughs> no. the posterior phrenic angle. Uh, but anyway, but Michael's describing, Michael is describing, I have not, Michael's describing some uh, interesting uh, stuff that I, I, internal medicine physicians I don't think think about. Uh, he has to think about this, but we don't think about uh, these, well, that's these our job. complications. I mean, I, right. 
right? Yeah, I don't worry about diabetic. No, you do like not. You don't. No, so you do not. I don't but, know. But, but it's, it's refreshing to hear you know all the stuff that I, I vaguely remember from thirty years ago is coming to, to stuff that you have to think about every time that you have a big complicated case. So uh, these. So typically, if it, if it's an uncomplicated gallbladder, is actually same day oh, surgery. It's an outpatient surgery. Yeah, so you where walk, they come in in the morning, and even yeah, even as late as like three or four in the afternoon. Oh yeah, a lot right. of time. I mean. With the COVID and stuff, changes yeah, a lot of stuff changed because right. of volume and stuff like that. So right. because of staffing and right. not having right. a Big recovery difference. staff till nine thirty or ten o'clock at night. Right. Uh, obviously, if I can send you home at at ten thirty at night and you not have a, a room charge, right. uh, you're saving a thousand or two thousand dollars a day easily, even as an overnight stay. Right. So it's worth it to have. A nurse or two that's there. Right. If you got four or five patients that are in that kind of condition between right. the various people who are doing that surgery, surgery that so right. That's. But you could take it. Yeah. So this, it's amazing to people if it's uncomplicated. You're not in an acute attack where you've got plugged off a gallbladder. You're not jaundice. Not fever, feverish. Uh, you're not throwing up and stuff like that. That you can be electively brought in and and go through this and go home the same day. Uh, And I I would tell you, too, Mm -hmm. if you have patients that don't have a lot of issues with anxiety. Yes, yes. If you don't have patients who are taking pain medications for their chronic knee problem or whatever else, uh, you can get those patients out of the hospital. And I would tell you probably 80% between the combination of Aleve and Tylenol Mm -hmm. that they don't need much more than that. Maybe an ice bag to prevent some of the throbbing around the umbilicus. Right. And if they get up and stretch out and stand up straight and get a good erect posture, they can be where in two or three days they're maybe Tylenol to go to sleep at night uh, and stuff like that. So what what people, because we've talked a little bit about chronic pain and what we talked about, but uh, these patients, what you're describing, you can, you can, you can take it, you can take a, you can cut through their skin, the subcutaneous fat, their muscle and put, uh, and and so this hole that, that that you can put uh, your laparoscope uh, through a couple of them, up to four of them, if you're doing the old fashioned way or one of them, if you're doing uh, the new technique, you can go inside and, and manipulate the gallbladder, pull it away from the liver, Clip off the gallbladder, the the the, the bile du- the bile duct. Uh, you don't clip the bile duct. You just the, right. the cystic duct and cystic, the arteries. Cystic duct and arteries cystic artery. Occasionally, yeah, a vein or something right. you may see there as well. So, so the, at best it would so be it'd be three three clips. Is that right? Yeah. Three clip three clips. Uh, and so and you can uh, you take out the gallbladder intact in a sack through that yeah, one and a half inch. Usually we put a, a, a sterile bag that. On a handle that you push down, and the bag opens up. Uh-huh. It has a little ring to ho- keep right. it held open. Yep. And you just stuff it in there, and it has cinch it, cinch it, cinch and it bring up, it and pull it out through it the up. hole. And so with things, the, with so all the content, all the contents are intact inside the gallbladder. And the bag is mm-hmm. right. It's not like a zip, a little ziplock. It's really very. It's almost like Top. a. a Parachute type fabric. Yeah, sure, so it, sure, it sure. Won't like a dac- or dacron or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So, so you, can, you can you can do that. You can actually take a, a large hemostat and stretch that incision while mm-hmm. I'm not making the sure. incision bigger. Right, right. With your sleep, it, I right. can stretch it out. It's type of uh, it's a type of clamp, a type of clamp that he can stretch the opening, and so you can pull out the bag with a gallbladder. How much? Is, how big is a gallbladder typically? It's the size well, of my what? A is normal it? a normal gallbladder that doesn't have stones is probably about the size of one of the kids. Party balloons you get those little yeah tiny yeah, yeah, yeah 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 so like deflated one dollar d- deflated yeah d- dollar store party balloon that's not inflated right. yet yeah right now I mean I've seen a couple of them actually is almost as big as two fists two fists so they're and inflamed and full of right, pus the, and everything else but yeah. the, those are the ones you have to really watch out for right. the big ones because the anatomy could be var- it very could be a variant or right. it could be it's just been not functioning for right. so long that it's just dilated itself up right. Um, and so, and so it's amazing. Tylenol and Motrin for this big of a procedure. The procedure is forty-five minutes if it's uncomplicated. Yeah, thirty minutes. Thirty minutes. Forty-five. Yeah. Yeah. To, from from skin to skin. Mm-hmm. So from insertion of the uh, from from cutting to get the trocars and then the scopes in to 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 to, to suit the last few sutures of the of the little incisions. Right. It's, it's forty-five minutes and stuff. If well, it's totally uncomplicated, it, the patient's healthy. Blah blah blah. Yeah. In an elective situation with a not yeah, morbidly yeah. obese patient. Right. Right. 
you it takes as much time to put them to sleep and to wake them up as it does to <laughs> yeah. do the surgery. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's right. if the team's got everything set up. If the and team works with each other. And, right. Yeah. You know, and it's then, like so playing piano know. versus having a concert band. I mean, if everybody's yeah. you know, if everybody's on the same page, right. It's, it's and that's totally uncomplicated. Complicated one could be multiple hours. Yeah. I mean, the, it's not about the time. It's about the quality of right. the procedure. Of course. So. Um, if there's something you you're not sure of, or right. you, you're there. Right. If I take my time laparoscopically, or I put an extra instrument in for better exposure, right. That frequently, I would say, probably nine out of ten times would be why why we do that. Right. Yes. And that gets us down into that two percent range of having to open because complicated anatomy, right. Right. complicated procedure, right. that type of thing. So 2%, and you convert about 2% of laparoscopic procedures as you start like that, you convert two, two out of every 100, you have to convert to an open procedure? Probably about 1%. 1%. Yeah. So you have to convert because things are not what they seem by CAT scan or ultrasound right. before you got it. And, and, and there like are yeah. cases too right. uh, where one of the things we see a lot more now than we did before mm -hmm. is because people have had so much different types of laparoscopic That's right, surgery they have. That's right. that you go in the simple way and all of a sudden you're dealing with a, an hour's worth of adhesions or scar tissue from the other surgery. So we should talk about that briefly. Especially so, hernias. I guess that was where I was. Good. So hernias is one of the issues. So intra-abdominal, this is not, this is not, this is not liposuction where you don't get entered the, uh, what he's, what Michael's talking about is entering the solomic cavity, which is, uh, is, is the, inside, inside the, the inside the peritoneum underneath. But, uh, so you go through the skin and uh, fat and then several layers of muscle. Now you're in the area. So that's when you get adhesions is inside that, uh, inside that, uh, uh, inside the muscle, uh, so um, and so that's so these people are having bariatric surgery, and they're having and they're having uh, and they're having uh, hernias, hernias, colon surgeries. Colon surgeries. Uh, I mean, they're now mm -hmm. doing adrenal glands. I've done a, done a couple of adrenals mm -hmm. laparoscopically. Anytime you enter the belly, uh, you set up for adhesions, which is scar tissue, it's inflammation. Even if there's no infection and stuff like that, just entering the, the belly. Uh, in the old days, whenever we just had powder on our gloves, that would right. be enough to trigger an inflammatory response and right. adhesions and stuff like that. That's the, uh, that's, uh, so, so, so the adhesions muck up the works in a bunch of different ways, certainly for you to be able to expose what you need to see uh, through the scopes and stuff like that, that adds a ton of time and risk. I think that the one, I mean, one of as something is very unusual cause of that. When I was in residency, we had a patient who had come from one of the Eastern Bloc countries uh, yes. where tuberculosis, tuberculosis was much right. high. And we get in there, and it was amazing because it was like all these little white dots all over the right. place. Everything stuck together. Right. It wasn't. It wasn't like liquidy. Right. This is like peeling the thing mm -hmm. off of an orange yeah and then we sent it and they said well this tuberculous peritonitis i mean that's the only time i ever saw that yes yeah yeah we we yeah we're caught off guard i have an uncle who's in his 80s and the tb of the of the bladder uh, yeah you could have tb of, of the uh, spine uh, the vertebrae of the spine right. pots and uh, disease and so yes yeah it's you always have to you have to be even though you're a surgeon you have to know a lot more than just the, you know the anatomy you have to be and stuff like that. you have to be you have to be an intern you, you have to be you have to be an infectious disease specialist you have to be an internist you have to do a lot of stuff uh, any good doctor would be uh, just like you um, so, uh, so, uh, so typically uh, you, uh, these people will not, uh, this is, uh, you'll never have another gallbladder attack again because your gallbladder is out. You typically don't make any more stones, even in your ducts. But what in the old days, we used to have to tell people no more fatty foods because, well, but now, but that's changed. Uh, so tell, tell me I about the old days versus currently about diets uh, well, post, I, post operatively. I guess what I would say, the first thing about the diet is the first thing we say about the general population. Yeah. Well, of course. The dietary Following the diet is right. not like it used to be, no. uh, where right. you can't have fried food, Grandpa, because your heart attack, and right. he didn't take fried food. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now the diet, you can have patients who have biliary colic from an acalculus gallbladder right. or d dysfunctional gallbladder, and they may wind up getting spasm in their biliary tree. Yes, exclusive of the gallbladder because it's been going on for years. And yeah. it may be six months before you see, and they say, well, That's every time I had that cheeseburger and right. french fries right. and uh, a bowl of chili, I, I, it still lights me up. And it's like, yeah. well, just, give just it time. put the fire extinguisher 
and give it time. And most of those tend to go away over time. So you're describing something as smooth muscle that lines these ducts, uh, still spasms, even though the gallbladder is gone and, and, and uh, everything else, uh, the, some of the, some of the yeah. stuff that's, uh, that's interesting. Because it's Charlie Horse of the bile duct. It is. It is a type of charge. It feels like a cramp. It does. And your upper belly and your chest, it's mistakes for a heart attack well, between your shoulder blades. Sometimes uh, in older patients, they think they're having a heart attack because its pain is up high just below their breastbone and into their shoulders. That's right. And that's, oh, I think you're having a heart attack. And that's they right. run to the hospital and they find out that it's a gallbladder. Right. Um, so nowadays, I, I tend to tell people you may have diarrhea for a little while because now your food, you still, uh, now the, the, the liver is making bile all the time, it's dripping in the intestines all the time. Is that right. right? Well, the bile duct will dilate to take over that storage function. Ah, I did not know this. Yeah. I mean, I know so they dilate, but normal, I, didn't, I didn't realize that it was part of the storage function. A normal common bile duct with the gallbladder intact and functioning may be anywhere from six millimeters to about nine millimeters. Okay. And it can get up to about 13, 12, mm-hmm. 13 Okay. Uh, 1.3 yeah. centimeters right. is a, uh, an approximate biliary system uh-huh. and probably as much as 7 or 8 millimeters down close to the, to the stomach uh-huh. or the small intestine. Right. And so it will dilate to take over that storage function, ah. but that part of the mucosa does not absorb water. Right. So you tend, I, I would say, you tend not to form stones. Right. And that's one of the things that, from a technical standpoint, you want to leave a half a centimeter or less of the cystic duct or also that will tend to form stones within form that stones within that and can cause the same types of problems yes, yes. And those are much more difficult to diagnose because the right. ocg you can't use right. the ultrasound may not right. give you a good thing because the clips are have the been way, titanium uh, right they're starting to use some of the the plasticky type things ah, or okay. dissolvable Composite. clips yeah. but the problem with the dissolvable clips is if they <laughs> dissolve too fast they release too then you wind up with a bio leak that may not shut down because yeah. there's no right all these little act pressure issues yeah it's interesting well good um so that kind of covers kind of a good chunk of this stuff i'm gonna uh, is there anything else that well, you think that you would tell a, a, a patient that's gonna undergo surgery i know you have your own patter that you've done for decades, what you well, tell them about the pros and cons and w- w- watch out for? I would say, you know, everybody has a routine in terms of what they recommend. Uh, some patients will actually come in and they'll shave their abdomen and, mm. and stuff like that mm-hmm. in men. They shouldn't do that because mm-hmm. all the studies show the shortest time between the razor on the skin to shave until I prep the skin mm-hmm. is the lowest incidence of infection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's our biggest problem with external, because any wound can become infected. Right. So we want to do that. Um, so no need to shave. No need to shave before uh, the start. Or, or, uh, the start or of, especially don't use depilatories because they can damage the skin as well. Depilatories are like uh, sodium hydroxide, which is a nair uh, to, to kind of to, to, to kind of uh, eat away at the uh, at the um, at, the, the, at the hair. Right, and so that's a problem too. Yeah. So those are the biggest things. And after surgery. Um, most of us now have started using a, a glue-like substance mm, that yes. will close instead of that. You don't pick it off, you let it go, and it'll peel mm-hmm. off like the old blister skin on a blister. Right, right, right. And it'll stay on for about two weeks. Um, some of us had routines after the surgery that we would, mm-hmm. basically, I would do a second prep of the abdomen after I was finished and we took all the stuff off, mm-hmm. clean that off, and then put this glue material on our wounds. It's not a Band-Aid, so it's not going to stick to your skin mm-hmm. or to your clothing, clothing. when mm-hmm. you're moving mm-hmm. around. And usually by the time I see them back in the office in a couple of weeks, it's it was ready. ready to peel off. And half yep. of them are like, I don't want to peel it off. That's the superficial. That's, a, that's the last. That's the dermis. That's a, but you, uh, you suture, you, you staple below? We put, below? This, uh, we put it, you, well, because hernia, which we, I don't know if we have time to talk about those. We'll more, talk some more. Yeah, we'll talk about it a little I, bit. Mm-hmm. If, if you have incisions... Uh, for around the umbilicus because that's mm-hmm. the focal point of where the muscles react. Mm-hmm. I usually would use a non-absorbable suture at the muscle level. Okay, I'd put in yeah. a couple of them mm-hmm. independently so that if one broke, right, the, it doesn't the unravel. The whole, doesn't unravel everything. Everything doesn't unravel. Post uh, post-operative post uh, post-operative hernia, or, and, you, yeah. and then you wind up with a hernia, right. which now is a bigger deal because it's it's going to be. Another surgery, right. you're going through scar, and it's going to be harder to get it, and it's going to heal right. less effectively. So right. then we talk about mesh and all that kind of stuff right. if we need it. Right. So the biggest thing is the first two weeks to not 
push yourself to where mm-hmm. it's causing you discomfort and you say, oh, it doesn't hurt, it's just uncomfortable. Well, if you, it's because you went and carrying in a bag of groceries from the right. grocery store and it's 15 or 20 pounds right. and it hurts only when you do that, you're putting stress on that wound before it's had enough time to heal because mm-hmm. if you get ac- activity-induced discomfort more than after the second or third day, it's because mm-hmm. you're putting mm-hmm. stress on those sutures. Right. A lot of people are now using absorbable sutures, mm-hmm. so if they do that and the suture has to be a, a small enough caliber, mm-hmm. it's like going bass fishing with a two-pound test line if yeah. you're a fisherman. It's, yeah. it's, you're not going to bring it in because yeah. it, it breaks. Like, and once yeah. it breaks, that opening opens up, and eventually you'll have a hernia there. Right. So, so that, yeah, so I can see you, from your experience, you, you kind of know you, that you want to stop secondary complications from... Well, and, and whenever people, what, what were you talking about, whenever you talk about 15 or 20 pounds and stuff like that, is whenever anybody has to lift any, anything, what happens is we tighten our abdominal uh, our muscles and it will pull, uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of forces around holes anytime you put a hole through, uh, through, uh, right. well, through that, stuff the, like that. There's, the right. edges of that opening right. of the muscle will want to pull away, away as from well. each other right and since it's not under tension already it's right. going to have more tension to pull right. the center of it which means it's more likely to break an absorbable suture right so uh, as all time these progressed we used non-absorbable sutures in the umbilicus and found that it did and that's the whole purpose of sutures or staples and glue is to, because there's a natural healing process which is an inflammation and some scar tissue and uh, collagen and stuff that comes in and so it takes how, how, how long before you say the skin is back to, up to normal tensile strength uh, after you well what, what I mean you, if you, you did you studies on that you could find that it, you could find some differences in sure. the, the tensile strength starting at about a week mm-hmm on out to about three months. Beyond okay. that, you're not going to get much more healing. Right. Um, if if you do a lot of the stuff that you put a lot of tension on the skin itself, uh, you wind you can potentially induce scar formation, so you get larger scars. Mm-hmm. Some people get it with what's called keloids, keloids which is a right. hyper hyperactive healing processes, yeah. mm-hmm. and it can be where those keloids can be very hard and firm. Mm-hmm. And every time you lean up against something, They're it very causes tender. pain. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that once you get that, it's not just through right. the skin, right. it's through that whole depth. And so even taking the keloid out that you see right. does not necessarily get the, rid of the pain. Yeah. Because there's nerves that also become entrapped, and well, vessels and nerves that come well, entrapped. The, the, all the time. it's like a rusty hinge. It doesn't right. want to move right. like it normally would and stretch and things like that. And yeah. That's why those nerves get encased in the scar tissue, right. and then when you move it, it's like every yeah, electric this, shock and everything else yeah, is miserable. Burning, yeah, yeah. type of thing. Michael, thank you. It's uh, I, it's always it's always it's, I, it was not a basic science. This was a, a high level. This is a master level, of course. About, about 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 everything from from technique from technique to anatomy. And so I really appreciate. It. Thank you very much. Um, and this is Chuck Tadros, uh, and uh, we'll be back soon with uh, more Michael Smith. Thank you, Chuck. Hey, y'all. It's Vanessa again. If you would like to get involved with the podcast, we would love your feedback to our email address at notyourdocpod at gmail.com. As always, you can check us out on Spotify or YouTube. And our website, notyourdoc.com, is up and running with links to all episodes in Dr. Tadros's original Not Your Doc blog. We'll catch you next time. This previous podcast represents my opinions and the opinions of my guests. This is not medical advice, and I'm not establishing a physician-patient relationship with any listener. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each patient is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions that you may have.